morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Julie, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, and I am one of the pastors here at Resurrection City Church, and I just wanted to say welcome. Thanks for coming today, especially if you are just checking us out this morning, if this is your first time here. We're really glad that you were able to come worship with us this morning. So we have been going through a series on the book of Ephesians, and we're going to get back into that today. Um, But I wanted to know, do you ever have those things in your life that you think are totally normal until you happen to just like offhandedly mention it to people and you see this look of confusion on their face and you're like, oh, that's that's just me? Okay, cool. Um, So one of those things for me is that whenever I... And like listening to someone or something that's like talking in an accent or a dialect for a while. So say I were to watch something on BBC, right? Hear the British accent. I start to think in a British accent. (laughs) I cannot explain it. I am not intentionally trying to do it, but it just happens. And and I won't say it out loud. Like I won't try to speak that way, but my brain, I like can't turn it off. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know if I like secretly just really want to be British, but my brain just decides like, I'm going to take that on. I'm going to think that way. Um, And while maybe that's an extreme version, I'm guessing you can all relate to that idea on some level, right? Um, You probably have spent time around people where you suddenly realize like, oh, they say that a lot, and now I'm starting to say that. Or they always do this with their hands, and now I'm noticing I'm starting to do that with my hands when I talk, or whatever it is. There are things that when we spend a lot of time around certain people, we start to pick up their behaviors, their mannerisms, and sometimes even their values. And so Paul's going to get into that a little bit today, Um, but it's something that I I blame it on being a youngest child, so I think I, I grew up having to learn everything by watching my siblings, but I think we all understand it to some extent, this idea that we pick up the things that we spend a lot of time around. So we're going to jump back into Ephesians, like I said. Uh, For those of you who have been with us, we've kind of taken a little bit of a break. A few weeks ago, we had our spring retreat, and we all went up to Camp Lebanon. It was super fun. Um, And then last year, or last year, last week, we had Easter. And so today, we've kind of had, it's only been a couple of weeks, but even for me, it feels like it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Ephesians. Uh, And as we've talked about, the book of Ephesians is actually a letter. And so... You wouldn't, after reading something, you wouldn't take a two-week break and then just pick right back up in the same spot in the letter and be like, oh yeah, I remember what he's saying. You'd have to kind of look back and try to remind yourself, what's the idea here? What have they been talking about? And so I want to take a little bit of time to do that. Um, We've kind of been using this outline as we've walked through the book, and so I thought this would be a good way just to kind of recap, refresh what we've been talking about. So the letter starts with Paul talking about this plan of grace, right? He's talking about this grace that we have through Christ uh, and the power that we have with that as well, that we've been chosen by him uh, and that he has given us this new plan of grace, this new gift. And then the second part, he talks about what that means for us then, that we've been made new in Christ, that while we were dead in our sins, we've been brought back to life in Christ through no work of our own, all through Christ uh, and through God's grace. And then he starts to talk about what that means then for all of us together, right? He kind of talks about it. What does that mean for us individually? Then he moves into what does this look like for the society? So we've called this the new society. Um, And this new life should then affect how we live in community. So we're reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to one another. And then that matters how we interact with each other. 
we're called to live differently. Uh, and even though we have differences, we're called to live together in unity. And then the next part is the part that we're going to pick up in. And this, we're calling it the new standards. So it's basically the idea of how do we live now that we've been made new? So this new life, this new grace this, that we've been given should come with some differences in how we live. So what are those new standards uh, for how we are to live? And then lastly, we're going to get to next week, new relationships. So we'll talk about that coming soon. So before I dive into it, uh, I just want to look at exactly where we left off in the letter. Like I said, you got to think about this as something Paul wrote to somebody else that had a, a train of thought all the way through. Um, and so last time we were in Ephesians 4, the big themes were unity and maturity uh, and putting on the new self. So again, how do we live this new life together and what does that look like for us to do? Uh, and he ends where we, right where we left off. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So we're picking up this idea with forgiving one another so that we can live in unity. Okay, so let's get into chapter 5. We're going to do chapter 5, 1 through 20 today. So hang on. We're going to get through a lot of verses. Um, so verses 1 and 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he's been giving us these reasons to live in unity. Uh, and so he's basically just saying, here's why you should forgive one another, right? He said right before this, forgive one another, and now he's telling you why. Because God has forgiven us. He's reminding us of what we already talked about, uh, that we've, we're dead in our sin, but we've made, been made alive in Christ. And that because we've been given that grace, we should be willing to give that grace to others. We should be willing um, to have a forgiving attitude because we have been forgiven, but he's also going to talk about uh, that these new standards that we're being called to live uh, as people made new in Christ stem from what God, Christ has already done for us. So we're going to talk more about standards. Uh, and I know for some people, once we start talking about like, here's what you need to do or here's how you should be living, it can kind of become this like, okay, now I have to follow all the rules or I have to do all of these things in order to feel like God accepts me or God forgives me or God loves me. Uh, and I love that Paul starts this section with this reminder that we have been forgiven in Christ and that that has already taken place. We've already been accepted, and now we just get to live as if that's true. I was thinking about how uh, we kind of do this when we tell someone to, like, hey, you should act your age, right? Like, that's a saying that people will say. And when they say that, it's not like, oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z before you can be 25 or whatever, right? Like you are already 25 by virtue of years passing. Now they're telling you to live as if you are that age. It's not like, oh yeah, because you didn't hit these benchmarks, we can't put that you're actually 25 or whatever it is. And so it's similar here. You already have this status with Christ and with God as being forgiven and loved and a new person and now that's just saying, here's what it looks like to live as if that's true. So hang on to that idea as we move forward in this passage, uh, especially if that's something you struggle with. I really want you to hang on to this idea that these standards are not about earning something. They're just about getting to live out as a response to something we've already been given. And so as Paul continues, he picks up and he's going to give the Ephesians some fence lines. He's told them, you need to be forgiving just as Christ has forgiven us. 
But that doesn't mean you just excuse anything and everything. It doesn't mean that all behaviors are fine and we don't, you know, we just need to forgive constantly and it doesn't matter how we live. So Paul's going to draw some lines in certain places and I want us to think about these kind of as fence lines. A behavior that isn't fitting with the new life that we've been given. It just doesn't match. All right, so he goes on and he says, uh, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So where does he draw these fence lines? He says that, that immorality, specifically sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity or foolish talk, all of these are improper for God's people. They're just not fitting with what the new life that we've been given. They're not in line with what it looks like to live as if you've been forgiven and made alive in Christ. So why these particular things? Why did Paul pick uh, immor immorality, impurity, and greed to highlight? It could be that the Ephesians church was specifically struggling with these things, and so he was trying to write to the church to say, hey, here are the things that you need to think about. Um, but it's also more likely that this letter was meant to be circulated among lots of different churches. And so it could be that Paul's trying to keep it pretty general and keep it to things that he thinks that most churches are going to be able to relate to. And ultimately, Paul goes on, he says that these behaviors are actually idolatry. So it seems like the bigger fence line is around idolatry. If you remember in verse 5, he says, immorality, impurity, greedy people, these people are idolaters. He kind of just like throws that in there. But I think it shows that this is really what's at the root of it. This is really what Paul is drawing the fence around, and those other behaviors are more just like symptoms of the idolatry that they have. So we need to talk about what idolatry is then. Idolatry in its simplest form, if you just boil it down, is worshiping something or someone other than God, right? We were created to worship God, and any time we put that worship towards anything else, it's idolatry. Uh, but specifically in this passage, and as I was thinking about it, it seems like Paul kind of takes a focus on, on desire. What are you desiring? Is there something that you want more than you want God? Uh, whether that's more success, more knowledge, more happiness, more connection with others, whatever it is, when you put that thing above your desire for God, you slip into idolatry. And this is something that we see right away from the beginning of creation. So if you're familiar with the creation story, if you're not, it doesn't matter. It kind of starts and everything's perfect, right? Everything Adam and Eve are created, it's all good. Um, and then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve... Uh, they're in this beautiful garden that they've been given to live in and to work in, and the serpent shows up. And he starts to plant seeds of idolatry in their hearts. So if you look at the story, God's given them all these good things. He's given them more than they could ever need or want uh, for food, and they're, you know, they're together, they have community, they have perfect relationship with God. But the serpent comes in, and the first thing he asks is, did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And you, that's not what he said, right? So Eve says, no, actually, uh, he said we could eat from any of the trees in the garden except for this one. There's one tree that God has put a fence line around. Uh, and right away you see how Satan or the serpent is 
kind of trying to twist it, right? He's trying to say like, oh, you don't have enough. You can't eat from any of the trees in the garden, even though that's not true. And so then as the serpent continues, he pushes, pushes on Eve, pushing her towards wanting more. He says, oh, yeah, God said you would die if you ate from that one tree that he drew a fence line on. You certainly won't die. Uh, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But the interesting thing is that Adam and Eve were already like God. <laughs> they were created in the image of God. They had everything they could ever want. But the serpent pushes her towards wanting more. You could be more like God. There's something that you don't have that you need that I'm going to push you towards wanting that. Even though God has said, this is not something that is good for you, this is not something that you need or want or is going to be helpful, now there's this idea of, but I could have more. I could be more like God. I could have more knowledge. I could have more power. So Eve buys into the lie. She worships that desire for more knowledge, that desire to be more like God. Uh, she takes the fruit from the tree that God has put a fence around, and, well, the rest is history, right? Sin enters the world, and it affects all of us today. So looking at Ephesians, how do we see idolatry or this idea of wanting more, wanting something else more than God in these things that Paul puts a fence line around, in sex or greed or foolish talk? And I realize that in bringing up sex, there are probably a couple of different reactions. Uh, some of you who maybe grew up in settings where you don't talk about sex or in churches where you never talk about sex are maybe a little uncomfortable. Um, and others of you are like, why is she making a big deal about this? It's just sex, right? Like, it doesn't matter. It's just another thing in life. Uh, it's really not a big deal. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, sex is this great thing that God created for people to have intimacy. Uh, and he created it to be in the context of a covenanted relationship, a committed relationship um, that images the way that intimacy and commitment that God has with his people. And we're actually going to get more into how marriage reflects Christ in the church next week. That's the, um, what's coming up in Ephesians. But in the context of marriage, sex is a good thing, and it should be celebrated. But outside of that context, that's where God has drawn the fence line. So outside of the context, that's what Paul calls sexual immorality. And that can cause problems. And I know that that idea might seem a little outdated, right? Like this is not something that the rest of the world is going to buy into, but I want to point out a few ways that maybe we see some of the effects of that or some of the ways that culture maybe is catching on to some of the things that we might believe uh, in terms of where the fence line should be drawn. So in the 1960s through the 1980s, a little short mini history lesson, uh, we as culture went through something that sociologists called the sexual revolution. And one of the biggest outcomes of that was just that it made sex normal. Uh, it took away the cultural taboo to talk about it or to do it, and it turned sex into just any other social interaction. Uh, and the problem with that is, while many people like this idea, when we look at kind of the history that, of culture and what we're seeing, we're starting to see some of the consequences of that idea. Uh, with other social interactions, right, so if you take another interaction, maybe you invite me over for a dinner party or something, right? If I don't follow the normal customs and rules, if I, you know, if I show up late or if I chew with my mouth open and tell you the food is gross or I way overstay my welcome and you're like, oh my gosh, when is she ever going to leave? It's annoying, right? But it's not, it doesn't have some like long-lasting 
effect. It's not necessarily something that's going to cause trauma to other people. Um, it's just a rude guest, right? It's just a social interaction, and it's unfortunate, but you know, you kind of move on. But we've seen now, especially uh, as culture has kind of moved towards talking more about this, uh, when the lines of the sexual interactions are crossed in terms of in like negative ways and not following social customs, we actually have really intense consequences, right? Like we're seeing this with the Me Too movement, um, with sexual harassment. There's something about sex that has a deeper impact than other social interactions. So even though we've tried to say like, oh, it's just the same and there's nothing sacred about it, it's just this thing, we're actually feeling the effects of that as a culture, right? There are things that say like, wow, this really impacted me in a really deep way, whatever it was, and we see that it's not just any other thing. There's something sacred about it. Um, another thing that we kind of see this in is that I read an article recently from The Atlantic called Young People Are Having Less Sex. And the, one of the points they made is that we're seeing a decline in sex in general in young people because they don't want to get naked in front of each other. <laughs> There's something about sex that is really intimate and really vulnerable, and it makes people uncomfortable. Um, and so we're seeing that because you have to reveal so much of yourself, both physically and emotionally, it feels like something more than just an everyday interaction. So we can see that there's some truth to this, that sex is something more sacred than what we maybe want to say it is in culture. And that there's value in having sex in the confines, in the fence lines that God has put up. Uh, there are reasons that he's put fence lines around it and said, I want this to be something that can be sacred, that can be safe, uh, and that can be in a context of a committed relationship in, a, in Christian marriage. Okay, so if that's the fence line around sex, then we can see how sexual immorality really is in a sense a form of idolatry. Uh, because usually sex isn't actually about the sex itself, it's about something else. It's about wanting connection, it's about wanting power, it's about wanting, um, you know, fill in the blank. We do things for all different reasons, happiness, comfort, whatever it is. And so when we put those desires or that desire for more of whatever that is above our desire to follow God and our desire to worship God, that's where we end up in sexual immorality. Uh, and you see that with other things in here too, right? Greed. Greed in its definition is like wanting more, right? It's wanting something more than wanting God or wanting to follow God. So whatever our desire it is, it outweighs our desire to follow God. And what's interesting to me is that Paul uh, sets this up, this idea of idolatry, he sets it up in contrast to thanksgiving. So in verse 4 he says, but rather thanksgiving, right? Rather than immorality and idolatry, let's, let's move towards thanksgiving. And as I was thinking about it, I was really struck by how if you're frequently giving thanks for what God has done in your life and what he's given you, you're not focusing on, on needing more, right? Like you're focusing on what God has done already and you don't feel this desire of like, but I got to have more of whatever it is that I want. That desire is moved towards Christ. So I think it's a, an interesting setup that he says that when we practice thanksgiving regularly, it actually helps prevent or guard us against idolatry. And truly, we have already, as we talked about in verses 1 and 2, we've been given all we need. We've been given Christ, and in him we've been given this new life. And so when we practice thanking God for that, it helps us set our desires rightly on him. 
And Paul sets up this contrast between idolaters and believers, or those who have inherited Christ. Uh, and as you, as you continue in it, you read that verse where he talks about, like, nobody who is ever an idolater is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And I think we're all like, <gasps> right? You feel this, like, panic a little bit, because we know that all of us have struggled with idolatry. None of us are perfect. All of our sexual immorality, all of our greed, everybody deals with it. We deal with it in different ways, but none of us are exempt from it. We all worship things other than God. So I think that the way to understand this verse or the way to like kind of put it in its context uh, is to think back to Ephesians 1 uh, when Paul says, he says in verses 13 and 14, he says, And you have been included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So again, this was a letter. It was written by the same person throughout the whole thing. So if Paul at one point is saying, hey, you have this seal, you are guaranteed uh, redemption, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, how can he then go on to say later, but if you do this thing, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And I think what we like to do in our minds is we like to separate people into two categories, right? We like to think that there's like good and bad. There's the people who are idolaters with no inheritance in God's kingdom. And then there are the believers who do good things. But we know that that's not the truth, right? We know that there is an overlap. Uh, so that little purple section is us, right? <laughs> if we believe in Jesus, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, uh, but yet we still struggle with idolatry. And so I think when Paul is talking about uh, the people who are idolaters not inheriting the kingdom of God, he's talking about the, the section, the complete red section there, the idolatry section. The people who have not accepted Christ, they have not put their faith in him, um, they have not experienced that yet. And so again, just remember the context here. Paul's setting up some fence lines. He's calling us to be forgiving, uh, but he's also saying let's not just let certain behaviors run wild. Uh, and as we keep going, we'll see he's also going to kind of give some warnings about falling into those behaviors, right? Letting ourselves be influenced by people who do those things. So that's where, in what I was talking about earlier, when we spend a lot of time around people, we can start to pick up their behaviors. And Paul's going to start talking a little bit about that. So he said, let's keep going in Ephesians. In verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So here we have this idea that I mentioned in the beginning uh, that we've kind of been talking about, that you become a lot like the people you spend time around. So Paul's warning them, don't become partners with people who are living in darkness, who are trying to deceive you, just like the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. You don't want to surround yourself with people where, who are all chasing after idolatry, because the end result is going to be inevitable. You're going to start running with them, right? We become like the people we spend time with. It's kind of like kids in school, right? Like they, I remember teachers would always say, like, Make sure you sit by someone who is going to help you make good choices or basically saying, like, don't sit next to your friend who you're going to talk to the whole time. And, of course, no one ever followed it. We all sat by who we wanted to sit by. But we know the result happens, right? If you know one of your friends is super distracting and you sit by them, you know you're going to be distracted, right? 
And so Paul is saying, let's, let's put some fence lines. Let's be careful with how we do that. And he says to do something with these people. He says in that last verse, to expose them. And to us, that sounds a little scary, right? It sounds kind of intense, like there's some like 60 Minutes episode that's going to expose corruption, and it's going to be this big thing. Uh, and it also sounds really negative. But that word expose there, it can also mean convince. So let's keep reading. Keep that in your mind. Let's keep reading to what, see what Paul's getting at. He says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light or convinced by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul's using this image of light and dark, uh, and how when light is shined on something, it becomes visible. Something we all know, right? You always get out your phone with the flashlight when you're in the dark trying to find... For me, it's always like trying to find my glasses, which when, you're, when you can't see very well and you can't find your glasses, it's this like catch-22. I'm like, how am I going to find them if I can't see them? Um, but he's using this analogy of light and dark. But you'll notice that he, he shifts the analogy a little bit. It's, it's a subtle shift, but he says that the believer, the people who are light, they're actually light. Not just that they're surrounded by light or that they can use light, but they actually are the light. Uh, and he says that everyone, everything that is exposed or, again, convinced by the light also becomes light. And then he quotes uh, this. If you know, were wondering, like, why is that section in quotes and why is it offset a little bit? Uh, he was likely quoting a, a hymn or a song that they would have sang around that time. So it's this idea uh, about rising from the dead, being made new in Christ, and Christ's light shining on you. So in some ways, the analogy is a little bit more like one candle lighting another. In fact, the whole thing kind of reminds me of uh, the tradition that my parents' church had. A lot of churches have this at Christmas Eve, where they have kind of the, the Christ candle up front that's supposed to represent Christ, and everyone else has their own individual candle, and someone goes up and gets the light from the Christ candle, and then it kind of passes on and passes on, and you try not to let the wax drip on you, uh, but inevitably it always does. But at the end of it, the whole sanctuary is lit up, uh, and you see that this light spreads from candle to candle. So there's this idea that this light from Christ is given to us, we become that light, and then hopefully we go and help other people become light as well. And so really this idea of exposure, it doesn't have the connotation, uh, this like really negative connotation that we might think it has, where it's like, oh, look at you, you're dark, and that's bad. Um, but it has a, an idea of Showing the darkness, right? Helping people understand who they are, how they're dead in their sin, how they're, they're lost without Christ, but also giving them something positive, giving them light, helping them be convinced or just to see the light of Christ. And as they do that, they become light as well. So the light exposes their darkness, helps them see their sin, but also gives something else to put their hope in. They're convinced by the light of the gospel or by the light of Christ. Okay, so let's finish what Paul has to say in this section then. He says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this interesting tension, right? Before we had Paul saying that uh, 
we need to be careful with the darkness, right? Don't partner with it. Don't get too close to it. And yet, here and now, he's saying, go out into the darkness and illuminate it. Go in and convince people with the light. So where's that tension? How do you deal with that, right? He's saying, don't get too close, but also go into it. And we've seen Christians have varying opinions on this throughout the years. Uh, We've seen people who have the mindset that, like, okay, then we just need to separate completely from society. We just only need to be around other people who have the same beliefs and the same light that we think we have. Uh, And if we just stay away from the darkness, then everything will be fine and we'll all be good. But again, as we talked about before, we all have that darkness in us. We all struggle with idolatry. So even when you separate completely and you think we're all, you know, we're all following Christ and so we're all just going to be together, there's still going to be idolatry in your heart. You're still going to have that darkness. Um, And so no matter what it is, the idea of truly separating can't be the right thing, right? It doesn't actually work. I feel like it's kind of similar again to the diagram I showed you earlier. We have to live somewhere in the middle, right? We're never going to be completely light until Christ come back, comes back, makes everything new. Uh, but we also don't want to spend all of our time in the dark. And so here we see that Paul reminds us to consistently be seeking the light. In the verses that I just read, he, see, he says to be filled with the Spirit, and again brings up that idea of thankfulness, thanking and praising God uh, to remind us of the gift we've been given. And you'll notice here that the instruction to be filled with the Holy Spirit is in the passive voice. So it's not something you're actively doing. Uh, It could be read, let the Holy Spirit fill you. So how do you go about doing something that needs to be done to you? Uh, One of the commentaries I read this week, John Stott, said, There's no such technique to learn and no formula to recite. What is essential is such a penitent turning or repentant turning from what grieves the Holy Spirit and such a believing openness to him that nothing hinders him from filling us. For the fullness of the Spirit is not a once-for-all experience, which we can never lose, but a privilege to be renewed continuously, to be continuously believing and obedient appropriation. So in comparison to the, the verse from Ephesians 1 we read before, where we have this seal from the Holy Spirit that's you know forever and everlasting, they're, they're talking about salvation. Here we're talking about something that's more ongoing, that's daily has more to do with how we live our daily lives. And as we continue to repent from idolatry and to move toward thankfulness and belief, when we spend time in the word of God, when we are uh, filled with the spirit by being around other people who also have the spirit, that's when we can kind of be filled with it. Uh, It happens to us, but the choices that we make impact how it happens. And I was kind of thinking about it as like an old kerosene lamp or an old oil lamp. Uh, And the way these work, I kind of had to look it up because I I only knew vaguely how they worked. Um, But they work as that they have some kind of oil or fuel that sits in the bottom in that like metal part of the container. And as long as that, uh, the wick that sits in there is like connected to the fuel or sitting in it, then it has enough fuel to be lit. And as long as there's oil in there, then the lamp will stay lit. And I think this is a helpful analogy when we talk about how to be light in darkness. Because we need to be relying on the Holy Spirit daily. We need to be filled daily. And as long as we have that, we can remain in the light. We can remain light to people. And so, But we need that oil to stay lit. So if we spend too much time in the darkness and try to rely on our own strength, we're going to run out of fuel. 
But when we spend time uh, around other Christians, when we spend time in the word, when we spend time being filled with the Holy Spirit, then we have that light and we're able to go out into the darkness confidently and to illuminate the darkness there. So that's why I want to move into a time of application, talk about how do we actually do that? What does that actually look like for us in our lives? And I think before we can get to the part where we go out and bring light into the darkness, we have to talk about the darkness in our own heart that we've kind of been referencing. So my first question for us is, where do you need to shine light in your own life? What darkness do you have that you need to examine and to really look into? Because like I said, we all have that tendency towards us, toward darkness. We all are bent towards idolatry, towards worshiping things other than God, and to wanting more than what we've been given. So ask yourself, what idols do I have in my life? What do I want more than I want God? More of what never seems to satisfy me? What is the thing that I keep chasing after that I just, I'm always thinking about, I need more of that thing? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's people's approval or affection. Maybe it's success. What is it that drives you? It takes your time and your energy. And then how can you turn from those idols and instead choose thankfulness and praise of God? If your idol is people-pleasing and the approval of others, praise God that in Christ you never have to strive for God's approval. He looks at you and he sees Christ in all his perfection. You never have to worry about measuring up because Christ has done the work for you. How incredible is that? It's crazy when you start to think about all these things that we want more of, how we're actually satisfied in Christ in them. If it's money or security, think about the fact that you worship a God who knows exactly what you need. And he valued you so much that he was willing to give his only son to ensure that you have eternal security. We have so much to be thankful for in Christ. And it's worth, us, worth it for us to do the hard work of turning from our idols and turning to praise instead. I've been really convicted by this this week, uh, and it's something I'm, I'm trying to figure out. How can I work ways of thankfulness or practices of thankfulness into my life to remind myself of the good that I have in Christ and the, the grace that I have and the love that I have? Okay, so the second question I want to talk about is, how can then you bring the light of Christ into the darkness? Some of our values at Red City include renewing culture and multiplying disciples. Uh, and I think it, for both of those things, it requires us to go out into the darkness in order to accomplish that. So how do we do that? First of all, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I do like that the NIV translates it, be filled, instead of let it fill you. Because, like I said, there is something that we need to do in order for it to happen. And so I want, what we need to do then is to, the first part we just talked about, actively repenting from our sin and moving towards God. Uh, but also, again, spending time with Christ, spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, all of those things are going to help fill that oil well so that you can stay lit, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then go out and influence other people. Use the light that you have. You do this in word and in action, right? I know it's not super popular in our society to be Christian right now, um, but as a point of encouragement, a recent study showed that most of the unchurched people, about 80% of them said, if a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind them talking about it. So I think it's helpful to remember, people want to know you. They care about you. They care about what you care about. And so use that. Talk about why you do the things in your life, right? You don't have to like give them a lesson on theology, but don't be afraid to share your faith. Don't be afraid to uh, share those parts of your life. 
It can be as simple as just sharing your motivation as to why you do something. Maybe you're telling a friend or a coworker about a fight you had with your spouse. Why did you forgive them, right? Why were you able to move on? Sometimes when you talk to people, they're like, oh, I would never, like, you know, I'd be so mad. I'd never be able to get over that. That's a great opportunity. Just say, yeah, you know, I've, I believe that I was forgiven by God. And so for me, being able to forgive others is something I can do through that. It's just those mini moments where you can share stories and give people the motivation behind why you do things. Or maybe it's something you do out in the community. Maybe it's a, you know, we some of us here volunteer at Hamlin Elementary. So, you know, when you tell your friend, oh, yeah, I'm volunteering with the, I'm reading to a first grader today. Just give a small example, right? Like, I believe that God cares about all people. And so I want to be able to share that. Uh, I want to be able to invest in the younger people in our city and in our world. So be open to what God is doing. Pay attention to it. Um, and don't be afraid to use the influence that God has given you. Bring your light out into the darkness. I want to close today by looking at um, Matthew 5. It talks a little bit about uh, light and darkness. It says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the point of having light is not to hide it, right? It doesn't make sense. You wouldn't light a lamp and then put a blanket over it. The point is for it to dispel darkness. It's to go out and to have other people see it so that they can worship God. So as we move to a time of communion and worship, uh, communion is a great place to examine the own, your own idolatry in your heart. Confess it to God or to someone else and turn to praise and thankfulness instead. Then when you come forward to take communion, remind yourself uh, and all of us that we have forgiveness in Christ's death. And anyone is welcome to come take communion. We just ask that you are a believer and that you have accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if you haven't yet made that decision, I encourage you to pray about it right now. I encourage you to think about it. Uh, And if you're ready to take that step, then please, we invite you to come and take communion with us. Giving is another way to respond to what God has done. So if you'd like to give financially, you can do that. There's a box in the back, or you can do it online as well. All right, so we're going to move to that time of response, uh, and I'm going to close us in prayer. Father, we turn to you today in thanksgiving and in praise. You've rescued us from our, our idolatry and made us alive and light in Christ. Help us to practice turning from our idols and turning to you instead. We want to live lives worthy of the grace you've given us, so please continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Give us the fuel we need to be lights in a dark world. Give us the boldness that we need to share your light with others and show us where you are leading and where you are working. Give us the courage to follow and obey you. In your name we pray. Amen.